Okay, uh, today is October the, is it the 13th? Okay, October the 13th, 2011. And let's see, what we got going on? I don't think I have any, an, oh, is it, was it this, it wasn't, was it this Wednesday that we, oh, you already had it. Okay. <laughs> I was here Wednesday also, but it was a little bit later. I got here about 6.30. How'd it go? The, the Glory Be Girls? Y'all had it? Okay. I, I was ready to make the announcement for <laughs> Just be ready for next time. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this opportunity to be here, to charge our spiritual batteries, to focus on what is really important in this world, and that is you and your word. There's so many false doctrines, so much confusion that is about, and we thank you that your word is alive and powerful, and it is immutable, it never changes. We pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I got a letter, a letter today from uh, Israel My Glory, or it was Friends of Israel, their associates. And I thought I had put it in my briefcase, but I must not have. So I have to just um, exp- uh, describe it to you. It was, uh, they have this real glossy, paper, uh, different books and things that you can order. And one of them uh, was from, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, the name of the book was Maranatha. You know it, by that. What's his name we talked um, No, no, this was a guy that uh, he, um, R- Randall's, Russell, uh, Randall Showers is his name. And it's not Randall. It was close to that. Russell, huh? Reynolds, that's it. Reynolds Showers. And he has a book called Maranatha, and it's, it's terrific. It's uh, about the tribulation and the church. And what it had on the front cover, it said, uh, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, um, mid-tribulation, amillennialism, Post-millennialism, these were all, you know, different angles. And then in real big area in red in the middle, it said, confused. <laughs> and the idea is that that book is designed to wipe the cobwebs away. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that we had time to study First and Second Thessalonians because there should be no confusion there now. There should be uh, any cobwebs should have been wiped away and... You know what the tribulation is all about. You know that we are uh, pre-millennial and pre-tribbers. Uh, you know what the day of the Lord is. There's a lot of things that it, there's confusion uh, about. I was talking to a person uh, quite a while back, and somehow we got on the subject of the millennium, and I said, well, are you post-millennial? Are you amillennial or are you premillennial? She says, you know, I don't know about all that millennial business. All I know is I love the Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, understanding these things helps strengthen your personal sense of eternal destiny. It's not just the idea, okay, well, God's got it all under control. Well, He does. But when you know the specifics, when you understand that He has it all organized, it's already in His mind as if it had already happened because he's omniscient and he reveals these things to us, what it does is clarify all other doctrines because they're all related. And if you get off a half a degree on eschatology, somewhere along the line it's going to continue to get off course and it's going to skew your 
other uh, beliefs. One, one casualty seems to be that people don't, the people that don't have their eschatology right start embracing things like uh, replacement theology. They think that God is through with Israel. Usually if you're into amillennialism or postmillennialism, uh, you don't believe that there's going to be a millennial a millennial reign, or you think it's going that Christ isn't going to come until after we clean up the world and got it all a spiffy farm, and then He's coming back. If you if you buy those ideas, you're nearly automatically going to embrace replacement theology, thinking that God has done away with Israel, He's done with them, and now the church has replaced Israel. That's one of the casualties that usually happens. So this eschatology isn't just something to uh, keep us interested in the Word. It is fascinating to me that it, it's better than looking into a crystal ball because you don't have to pay for it and it is uh, absolutely perfect and true. So anyway, I was going to bring that and that was going to be my show and tell. But when you don't have the show, the tell kind of is a little off. Okay, we are in a new series that we're just calling Getting the Gospel Right which is more than what some people uh, realize. I'm going to put these notes on the board for us. Uh, we are in the area that some people have embraced, which is one of the false doctrines. It's one of the false concepts that people have. It's called universalism. Uh, universalism is the idea that God is going to eventually save everyone. Everyone is eventually going to go to heaven. And you would be amazed at how many people believe that. And we went over last time how it particularly shows itself when someone has a loved one who has died. And no matter whether they were the worst reprobate that ever lived, they want to cling to the idea that this person is in heaven. It makes them feel comfortable. It makes them feel good. And the idea is that everybody goes to heaven. The idea that we are all God's children, which is not true either. Now, it is true that God created us all. He is the one that imputed soul life uh, to our human bodies at birth, and we became a living soul. And He sustains us. However, that doesn't mean that we're part of His family. The only way that you can be a child of God is to be born again. And then you can be part of child, uh, uh, be a child of God. But you see, this universalism kind of reaches out and grabs other concepts as it goes along. It reaches out the concept of that, well, we're all God's children. It reaches out the concept of annihilation, which is just one of the twists and turns that those who believe in universe, universalism might take. Uh, annihilation is they think that nobody really goes to hell. Those that are really bad people and, and they don't believe in God and they don't believe in Jesus Christ are not going to go to hell. They don't really believe in a literal hell. They just believe that God is going to annihilate them. In other words, they don't say by what means, but he is going to do with, away with them to where they will no longer exist. And when you get into that, you can get into soul sleep. Every time you reach out and get a false doctrine, there's other things that cling to it. They adhere to it. And when you embrace that false doctrine, all these other, this other garbage comes along with it. And sometimes it's hard to eradicate that from the soul because people are very proud of what they believe. It's much easier to reach someone that hasn't got, grabbed a lot of false doctrines and have it solidified in their soul for a while because they're not too happy about letting go of that. That's why the religious people are the hardest to reach because they have a lot to unlearn as a rule. Here we are at lesson number three. Most universalists claim that love is God's essential attribute. They take that one single attribute and elevate it above all other attributes. They say it is blasphemous to suggest that a loving God would throw His creatures into the lake of fire that burns for all eternity. They ignore His attributes of justice and righteousness. Y'all know what I'm talking about when I say the attributes of God. 
for many of you, if not most of you, when I say that, there is an image that pops into your mind. It's a box. We call it the essence box. It has ten attributes of God. And any time you elevate any of them above the others, you get into trouble. Because they all have to harmonize. And what the universalists do is they take this love of God and they elevate it above all the others and they think, well, a loving God is not going to take his creatures and throw them into a lake of fire because, after all, God is love. And that's as far as they take it. And what I'm saying is they subordinate God's justice and his righteousness under love and then they can concoct this idea that everybody's going to be saved. Now, others make the same mistake and claim God's sovereignty is God's essential attribute. In other words, this time it's not love, it's God's sovereignty. They say that since God is sovereign and He desires all men to be saved, which 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, then all men will be saved. These people are either confused or ignorant of God's directive will or His permissive will or His overruling will. It is true that God is sovereign. It is true that God desires all to be saved. The proof of that is that He sent His own Son to purchase our redemption. The directive will is what God reveals in His Word, what He wants us to do, what He commands us to do. You can go through the New Testament and look at the imperatives. That is God's directive will, what we are to do. However, there is a fly in the ointment, and that is that we have a will also, don't we? God did not program robots. We have the power of choice. And if we choose to be either ignorant of or to be defiant of God's directive will and His commands to us, then we can do whatever we want to do. And God permits it. If you want, to, I don't know what your weakness is in your old sin nature. You have one. I have one. Everybody has a, a weakness. But if you, at some point in time, get bored or you get to where you just think, you know, I've told the line long enough and I'm just for a period going to let my old sin nature rule. I'm going to do what I want to do. The heck with what the Bible says. The heck with what God says. I'm going to satiate and satisfy my lust. And what's going to happen? Is God going to put some kind of invisible force not to allow you to do that? No, He's going to allow you to do that. That is called God's permissive will. Remember, one illustration is Jonah. Jonah told, uh, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. What did he do? He started out in the opposite direction. He knew the directive will. God permitted him to do it. But then we get to God's overruling will. And Jonah learned all about God's overruling, overruling will in the body of a great fish or whale or whatever it was. I heard somebody uh, giving the, uh, some information on the radio about prayer. And they, he, this, this person was saying, you can pray anyway. Some people say, oh, you need to be in church. You need to be in a prayer closet or whatever. And this guy was saying, no, you can pray, anyway, uh, pray anywhere. And he was saying all this. He had this long list. Rapidly, he was saying all these places where people uh, have prayed in the Bible. And he ended up with, and you can even pray in the, middle of a, in the belly of a fish. That's what Jonah did. He understood the overruling will. It, it's kind of like what... Uh, my dad told me one time, he came and informed me, he says, I want to tell you something. You can do anything that you want to do. Boy, was that good news to a 10-year-old. And he says, I can't make you do anything, but I can make you wish you did. That's the overruling will of God. So the overruling will was essentially, where did Jonah wind up? He wound up in Nineveh, didn't he? So the sovereignty of God is always active, but the sovereignty does not mean that because He desires us to be saved, 
He's not going to reach into you and turn a negative to a positive or a positive to a negative. We are responsible to God. That's because He gave us volition. And that's a great thing. That's the key to unlock so many doors. But it's a two-edged sword. You ought to be glad that we have volition. The other side of that coin is we're held responsible for how we use it. Here's another one here. Calvinists also believe the sovereignty of God is God's essential attribute. In other words, they elevate it above the other attributes. But come to a different conclusion. They claim that anyone who believes in unlimited atonement are really universalists. You understand what I'm saying? We'll get to more about uh, the misunderstanding between unlimited atonement and uh, universalism. They are not the same. But that's what a Calvinist would claim. If you tell a person who is a Calvinist that Jesus Christ died for all mankind on the cross, they're going to be very quick to retort to that by saying, oh, well, if that's true, then everybody would be saved. Uh, and that is a distortion that's taken sovereignty and elevating it above everything else, and it skews everything. Now, here's a quote, our first quote of the night, and it's from the Journal of Grace Evangelical Society, Volume 17, and it says this, uh, talking about Calvinists, uh, they don't understand God's remedy for human sin, death, and eternal judgment is both provisional as well as applicational. You know what that's saying? Again, the eternal judgment, uh, God has provided an outlet for us. There is eternal judgment, but He has provided a way out for everyone. But it is applicable only to those who believe. You see that? Let's see if I can show you where I'm here. And Jesus' death is universally provisional for everyone, and the application of its benefit is conditionally limited to those who believe. There is no reason to think or assert that Christ's death saves any one of us by itself. Christ's death on the cross made it possible for any person to be saved, but it did not literally save anyone because it was provisional. God provided for it. But it's not applicable or accepted. It's not a, 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 until you accept it, it's still just a potential. Without personal faith in Him, that's the, the, the condition there. Are you all getting that? And that is the counter to the hyper-Calvinists or the Calvinists who would say, well, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for all mankind, then all mankind would be uh, saved because God is sovereign. And if he died for everyone, then that would be the case. No, God made the provision for all mankind to be saved. But it doesn't apply to you until you first believe in Jesus Christ. Without personal faith in him, there's no reason... That is, except for the Reformed system of theology demands it. There's no reason to think that all would be saved except for a skewed theology that would demand that. Y'all got that? That's a very important point of doctrine that some people miss. Some people don't like to even entertain the thought that Jesus Christ died for everyone because if He's God and He died for everyone, He's not going to hold them accountable for their sins, and surely everyone is saved. No, because the redemption solution is only applied to those who accept the payment. Now we're going to get into some big biblical arguments, and still we're focused with universalism. It's a bigger deal than most, most people think. The biblical arguments for universalism can be grouped into three major divisions. This is what they think. The saving desire of God, the saving provision of God, and the saving promise of God. Those three points is where they anchor their belief that God saves everyone eventually. 
on those three things. And we'll look at each one of them individually. Starting with the first one, the saving desire of God. They'll take scriptures like First uh, Timothy 2.4 where Paul says, God desires all men to be saved. The Apostle Peter also expresses the saying, uh, uh, the same by saying desires of God uh, with writing that the Lord does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Universalists argue if God desires it, then it will ultimately happen. And then you take His desire and you add the sovereignty to that, and it's a done deal. Everybody's going to be saved. So those two scriptures, 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9 is where they anchor their beliefs. Of course, God desires all men to be saved. He has eternally proven that by sending His own Son to die for all mankind. The Bible describes God as a forgiving God who is loving and merciful, but it also describes Him as a God of justice and righteousness who is a consuming fire. This is not what the universalists like to think about, but we have some scriptures here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 27 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. Then Hebrews 10, 31 it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I'm going to throw you a little curve here that may be a little bit surprising to some of you. It should be noted that these verses are directed towards believers. Believers, not unbelievers. You go to Hebrews chapter 10, and they, uh, a lot of people will take that and try to say that if you... Uh, do certain sins, it's impossible but to be renewed again and all that. Where they get off base from the very get-go is they think that that is applying to unbelievers, but it's not. This is to believers. You think that God is serious about you growing in grace and knowledge? You think He takes it lightly when people say, well, I don't have to. I've got to I'm busy. I've got a lot of things to do. Maybe I'll fit it on my day planner sometime next month. Well... <laughs> Uh, you just want to fall into the hands of living God is a terrifying thing that could happen. So these are believers. God is no sentimental softy that will overlook the disobedience of those who defy Him. God desires all men to be saved, but if believers who are part of His own family should expect a terrifying judgment for defying Him, what should unbelievers expect? If this is what God will do to His own children who defy Him, I would tremble to think what He can do to an unbeliever. The next thing we were going to look at that they anchor their belief on is the saving provision of God. The first one we had the saving desire of God. Now we have the saving provision of God, and here's what they say. Included under this heading are biblical passages which highlight the apparent universal value of the work of Christ, such as John 12:32, uh, "Draw all men." Christ said, "If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to all men to myself." He was talking, and that's a first-class conditional clause, meaning. If he be lifted up on the cross, which he was, he was going to draw all men to himself. And what we call the uh, common grace, which goes out to any person that hears the gospel, that's the Holy Spirit acting as a human spirit so that the unbeliever can understand spiritual phenomenon. That's part of the drawing and the convicting process of the Holy Spirit for some, someone that doesn't uh, know Christ. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, uh, by the way, do you all remember 2 Corinthians 5, 19? For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Remember, do you remember that part? Titus 2.11 The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's a big one there, isn't it? They can really hang their hat on that one. Titus 2.11 The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And they say, okay, it's appeared, and it brings salvation to all men. Again, God's God's remedy for the condemnation that we all have upon us was Jesus Christ's work on the cross, His atonement. And when it says it has appeared to all men, or to all, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, um, God depends on us, believers, to give the good news, the gospel out. That's in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 also. He also has the stars. He has the message in the stars. He has the creation to show mankind that uh, he is without excuse because he has shown himself in creation as well. All these have appeared. When it says bringing salvation to all men, doesn't mean that everyone is saved, but it, it has appeared that salvation is for the taking of any man. But again, it's conditional upon those who take the redemption solution. The redemption solution is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. That he might taste death for everyone. Did he? Did he taste death for everyone? Jesus Christ hanging on the cross? Absolutely. We call that the doctrine of unlimited atonement. But as I'm going to show you in a moment, unlimited atonement does not equate to universalism. Unlimited atonement means that Christ's atonement on the cross was efficacious for all mankind. That, and this is when it says He tasted death for all mankind. He died spiritually on the cross in our place. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. He takes the death for all, for everyone in 1 John 2.2. 2. 1 John 2.2. 2. For He's the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. Again, we have that universal aspect in that. Now, this one is very hard, for, by the way, for the Calvinists to deal with because you have... Obviously, when he says, uh, for he is the propitiation, that means he satisfied the justice of God on the cross. He is the propitiation. He, God is satisfied with his work, his atonement on the cross for all of us. For he is the propitiation of our sins. But then it goes on and says, and not only our sins but for the sins of the entire world. Now, when you say that, it's hard to... It would be redundant for the Calvinists to say, for He is Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins, the elect, but not only for our sins of the elect, but for the, whole, for the sins of the whole world of elect. <laughs> That's redundant and it's not even good English. And that's not what it means. It means that Jesus Christ died on the cross and His, His atonement was satisfactory to God, not only for our sins, us believers, but for the sins of the entire world. Such, such texts claim the universalists speak of Christ dying for all mankind, and they, they rationalize, if Christ died for all, and His death, is, death effectively paid for the sins of everyone, then all eventually will be saved. See how they do that? They just 
If they had it in an equation, it would be the kind of equation I had when I took algebra. It's not even close to being right. The atonement of Jesus Christ is universal. You got that? It's, that means it's for everyone. Christ died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. We call it unlimited atonement. It wasn't limited just to God's elect and just for these or those. It was for the entire world. However, look at this. Unlimited atonement does not equal universalism. Just because Christ died and took the penalty upon himself for the sins of all mankind does not mean that all mankind will eventually be saved which is what the universalists say. This next paragraph I worked on for a while, I, uh, for quite a while, to get it worded the way that I want it to sound. I hope it comes across that way. The debt exacted by God on each of us because of our sins has been paid. But each individual must personally accept that payment for his sins or else stand before a holy and just God relying only on His own good deeds. Of course, if our good deeds could save us, there would be no need for Jesus to come to earth and die on the cross. You got that? So it is, the, the atonement is universal. Jesus Christ died on the cross and the punishment that God exacted upon us, He took on Himself. But each individual must personally accept that payment. You see, that's what unbelievers won't do. They won't accept Jesus' payment for their sin on the cross, even though it's a true and it's a reality. They don't accept that. They say, I reject that idea. I am not going to be justified before God because some person that I've never seen, some person supposedly came around 2,000 years ago and died on the cross and said he was the Son of God, and, and I'm supposed to accept that and that's going to make me justified before God? No. I will be justified before God by my what? Works. And that's what it says. Those that, that don't personally accept the payment that Christ made for our sins must rely only on their own good deeds and stand before Jesus Christ, not as their Savior, but as their judge. I want you to remember this last, this last uh, sentence I have here because it, it, it's so powerful. It, it's, the logic is there. Look at this. If our good deeds could save us, there would be no need for Jesus to come to the earth and die on the cross. Why aren't we telling people who are working their way to heaven that? If we have to be good, why did Christ have to come to the cross? I talked to someone about that one time. They said, well, you see, God, uh, Christ coming to the cross made us savable. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Think about it. That is a true statement. He completed the deal, but he made it potentially, the, the, the answer for redemption is potentially out there for everyone. When Christ went to the cross, he made our salvation and everyone else's salvation possible. But where they go wrong is, we say, we understand that. And the way that we are going to have God's own righteousness imputed to us, the way of salvation is accepting that payment, accepting that debt. We're not going to try to work. We accept it by believing in Jesus Christ. But the one who works, that, that, that thinks they have to work their way to the cross, thinks that, well, God did his part, now I have to do my part. And some people who say that are very nice people. They're very moral. They're likable. They may never miss a day at church. But they are as condemned as the, the worst terrorist that ever lived. 
That's what they don't understand and that's what they don't want to accept. Because there is only one way that we can have the atonement that is applicable for everyone as a potential, but the only way that it's applied is faith alone in Christ alone. So if anybody ever tells you, well, yeah, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, well, why do you have to do all these things? If we have to work, if we have to do anything, then Christ didn't finish the job on the cross, did He? Would God send Christ to go through that horrors on the cross, suffer spiritual death, agony that we can't even begin to understand, and say, well, now, that's only, that's only applicable up to a point. Now, you have to take it over from here. Does that sound reasonable? What did Christ say on the cross? It is finished. You can't add anything to it and you can't take anything away from it. But those who want to work their way don't believe that it was finished. But if they think even this far at all, which most of them don't, they would recognize that a holy, just God that is perfect in all His ways would not do a halfway job when Christ went to the cross. He wouldn't leave it up to fallible man. John 3.18, He who believes in Him, that is Christ, is not judged. By the way, this is our verse for October, which all of you should surely know. I was stomping on the kids yesterday because I asked them, what is our, first thing I did, I asked them, I said, what is our memory verse for this month? All right, I'll tell you. It's John 3.18. Who can quote it? <laughs> and so I'm telling, I, I tell, you know, I want to, I want to brag on, on this whole junior class to the church. I want to be able to tell them that they know every memory verse that we've had so far. And you can go up to them any time and they will just not hesitate. They'll just spit it right out. But I can't do that yet. So we're working on it. This, you see, why, look why this verse is so important. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe, what? Has been judged already. Why has He been judged already? Because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice, it does not say that he who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he hadn't accumulated enough good works yet doesn't say that, does it? And you can't make it say that. Number three here. The saving promise of God. This is the third area. It was the desire of God and the, what was the other one? The um, a provision of God. And now they're hanging their hat on the saving promises of God to try to say that God will eventually save everyone. Here's a quote. It says, The third group of biblical texts used by universalists are those which deal with the consummation of God's plan of redemption in history. Among those frequently cited are Acts 3.21, that God is going to restore all things. 1 Corinthians 15:26 through 28 when all things even death are subjected to him Ephesians 1:10 the summing up of all things in Christ and Philippians 2 9 through 11 every knee should bow and they take this for instance 1 Corinthians 15:26 through 28 when all things even death are subject to him and they say, everything's going to be subject to him, death, and everything. That means everybody's going to be saved. That is a stretch. In context, what this 1 Corinthians 15, 26 through 28 is, re, is referring to is that when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent, all unbelievers, well, all, both Jews and Gentiles, are going to be judged in their own time at that point. And those who are unbelievers, who have depended upon their own works, are going to be tossed off planet Earth into torments, into Hades. Actually, it's a compartment called torments, waiting for the great white throne. 
then Jesus Christ is going to rule for a thousand years, which is the millennium, and He is going to do away with all the enemies. At the end of the millennium, what's going to happen to the Antichrist and the false prophet? Lake of fire. What's going to happen to... Um, Satan's going to be tossed into the bottomless pit during that thousand years, and he's going to be released. He's going to form in a revolution, and they're going to rebel against God. Jesus Christ is going to destroy them with the word of his mouth. They're all headed for hell, you see. And that's the, the end. At the end of the millennium, that last enemy that is going to be defeated by our Lord is what? Death. There will be no more death. Period. That's what that verse is talking about. Okay, here's, I've got to go along here. I'm kind of dragging. You might not think so, but I do. <laughs> uh, God certainly will be glorified by restoring this wicked, sin-sick planet back to perfection. However, this does not even suggest that He will compromise His perfect justice and righteousness and give those who rejected the free gift of eternal life purchased by His death on the by His Son entrance into heaven based on their paltry, pitiful good works. He is going to bring it all together. And we're going to be the recipients of it. Boy, do we have a great time ahead of us. He is going to bring it all together, but that does not mean that He's going to compromise His perfect justice and righteousness. His perfect justice and righteousness demands what? Perfection! And we can't come up with it. But Christ took care of our sin problem and over and over, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. The only way that we can be perfect where God does not have to compromise His perfect justice and righteousness is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and He can impute to us His perfect righteousness because He took our sins and imputed them to Christ. It's an even trade. So bringing all things into perfection and bringing all things as to how they should be does not necessitate that God has to neutralize or compromise His perfect righteousness and justice. He will never do that. And He would have to do that to allow people who have rejected the gospel into His heaven. And it won't happen. Ah, okay. I thought we were going to get out of universalism tonight, but we're not. But we got some heavy, heavy lifting here, don't we? Some universalists use 1 Peter 3.19 to argue that unbelievers have another chance after death to accept the gospel. And here's, you, you can, you're not, well, you'll believe it when you see it, but I can't believe that they try to stretch these things this far. They use 1 Peter 3.19. Now, 1 Peter 3.19 says, "...in which also He, Christ, went and made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison." And they say, okay, well, Christ made a proclamation to, the, to those who are in prison. Those would be the unbelievers, and they're going to believe, and we're going to live happily ever after. Baloney. It's not even close to the context. This argument fail, falls apart when one just simply reads the next verse. Go to your Bible. Look at it for yourself. We're not a Bible open tonight. We can't get out of here without opening our Bibles. Yes, Okay. <laughs> no, that's not a human viewpoint question. It's just a um, hot potato. <laughs> uh, I can tell you uh, a lot of people think there are a lot of good doctrinal pastors think that there are. And there are good doctrinal pastors that think there are not. The question on that, by the way, what Barbara asked was, are there... Degrees of punishment in hell, right? Is that what she said? The thing that um, I can't get past is if Christ died for the sins of all mankind, how can they be punished more severely in hell if they've already been forgiven those sins? 
I mean, excuse me, they have not been forgiven. They, those sins have already been judged on the cross by Christ. You see my logic there? If, if their sins have already been judged, put on Christ, I don't know how they could be held accountable in more severity in hell. But I, you know, I'm not saying that dogmatically. All I'm saying is that's a question as hot potato as someone asked me one time right before I began to teach the star series with a bunch of people I didn't even know before I even got started. How old is the earth? Is it a six-day creation, the beginning, or what? And you know what I told her? I said, I don't have time to answer that right now. We'll just move on. That was a smart answer. You think I'm going to turn half of the crowd against me? They're not even going to listen to anything I say from then on if they don't agree with my answer? Anyway, um, we'll save that for another day. Uh, if they would only uh, read the next uh, the next. Verse. Here's First Peter 3.20. Let me read the, uh, 19 and 20 together. It says, In which also he, Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That they would say the spirits are those who died rejecting Christ. And now they're going to be set free because he's made this proclamation. This is the second chance they were wanting. But look what the, second, uh, the next verse says. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What does this thing? When the... Uh, who were once disobedient, the proclamation to the spirits that he's talking about, who were once disobedient, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which few, eight persons, were brought through safety through the water. This is referring to spirits who were existing at the time of the flood. It's not talking about anyone. It's specifically saying uh, Christ went and made a proclamation to spirits. And what spirits? Well, the ones that were waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Yeah. No. Not the Nephilim. It would be the fallen angels. The Nephilim are the offsprings of the women and the fallen angels. That's not where it, no. When, when Christ went to Tartarus, which we're, we were going to get to, which is where, that, speaking of the prison, that's it. He did not go to the Nephilim. They're dead and gone. I mean, they're, they're, he went to the uh, fallen angels who had went outside his boundaries and procreated with women, and he's had them locked up all that time. And when he went and made a proclamation to these spirits in prison, it wasn't given a second chance to unbelievers. That is ridiculous. He went and told them, essentially, I've gone to the cross. There's no use of hope anymore. Your goose is cooked. It's a victorious proclamation. That's what it was. And yet they try to say it's giving people a second chance. I think I... This verse, look at this. This verse is obviously linked to Second Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, the actual word there is Tartarus, a compartment of hell. It's a prison for those angels who, who did that. But cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Okay? doesn't have anything to do with God or Jesus Christ going somewhere after there's... Uh, People have died and making a proclamation to the spirits that he's going to give them a second chance. There is no second chance. If you die rejecting Jesus Christ, then your eternal destiny will be in the lake of fire. And you will not be annihilated. You will suffer there for all eternity. That's how serious this is. Yes, Michael. Yeah, the, the uh, promise was made in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. That's pure human. It's not half human and half angel. And if, they, if, if the, those fallen angels could have been successful in corrupting the human race to the degree that there was no more purely human beings left, 
they would have won the angelic conflict because God could not keep His promise that the seed of the woman, which was pure humanity, was going to be the Savior of the world. Because there would be no seed of the woman. There would be no Jesus Christ coming in human form, not pure human. It was just an attack on that. So this link is... is uh, link, look, at, look at your verses again. They say verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.19 is given the second chance to unbelievers after they die. We looked at 1 Peter 3.20, which qualifies who this is talking about. And it's linked with 2 Peter 2.4, which explains it. Now, let me give you this last paragraph and we'll, quit, we'll, we'll end. The proclamation was made to fallen angels, not human unbelievers. The most common error made by universalists in their practice of judging God and His actions by their standards of how... God has chosen to reveal Himself in Scripture. Instead, let me read that again. The most common error made by universalists is their practice of judging God and His actions by their standards instead of by how God has chosen to reveal Himself in Scripture. They cannot prove their place or their, their beliefs by Scripture. Just the opposite. It is pretty easy to demonstrate. I've got a host of verses that's going to show you that it just simply ain't so. But they make the mistake so many do that don't understand who God is or what's going on. Oh, surely God wouldn't do that. Well, they need to read Joshua, don't they? They need to read Joshua chapter 10 specifically. And they find out something about the justice and righteousness of God. Okay, we're going to throw the anchor out here. And we'll begin there next time. Father, thank You for this time. We're so glad that Your Word reveals the things that keeps us straight. And we don't have to jump to conclusions. We have the isagogics. We have the categories. We have the exegetics and the grammar. Everything that's necessary in order to make sure that we are interpreting and understanding Your Word correctly. So we pray that you will help us to file these things away in our souls, especially these verses, so that when we come in contact with those who are universalists, we can help them understand that you are a God of justice and righteousness, but also a God of love and mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.